Father, you have been very good to our church. And the evidence of your goodness is that we can genuinely praise that we have been washed away by the blood of Jesus Christ because we know what that means. That is the greatest of miracles. And this miracle, such miracles are happening here because of the faithful preaching of your word. Because you have given us your word and you have given us ears to hear and eyes to see. Father, we pray that um, as we are about to discuss more about the purpose of Advent, may your purpose of why you came become clear. May we not only know it intellectually, but may we begin to experience the reason why you came, which is to liberate, liberate us from sin. May that be our life's experience and confession, Lord. So help us to know that that is true. Lead our time here for the next few minutes, Lord. All this in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So we are um, continuing our studies about Advent. Advent is Christmas season. Another word for Christmas season is we are remembering and celebrating the coming of our Lord. Now, as, as I discussed last week, the purpose of us studying these verses in John, First John, it is so that hopefully through these first, through these uh, ten verses that the Lord will use these verses to help us cherish Christ during this Christmas season. You guys did a lovely job at the lights. I love the fact that there are little light things on the windowsills, and that's all great and wonderful. And my heart melts and finds, you know, joy in the beauty of such things. But beauty of such things pales in comparison to who Jesus Christ is. And in this holiday season, I hope and I pray you guys will all truly cherish Christ, right? Because there is no one like Christ in the entire universe. Um, and so, but, so the goal is to, of these sermons is to cherish Christ. But in order for us to truly cherish Christ, we need to know Christ. And we need to know why he came on a, both on an intellectual and experiential level. In the Bible, the knowledge of God, when the, when the Bible talks about the knowledge of God, the knowledge of God is not just mere intellectual knowledge. The knowledge of God also involves experiential knowledge. It is intellectual knowledge of God and our experience conforming to what we know of God that results in cherishing Christ. So the way you cherish Christ is that not only do you intellectually get why he came, but your experience has to conform to why he came. You not only know how, need to know why he came intellectually, your experience has to con, con, confirm the very purpose of why he came. Right? And we talked about last week. Why did Jesus come into the world? Jesus came into the world for, uh, for three main reasons. But the reason we're gonna, what, we're, what we're talking about last week and this week is, one of the main purpose of why Jesus came into the world is to destroy evil. He has come into this world to destroy evil. Don't let the cute little baby manger Jesus image fool you. He has not come into the world to be an innocent baby. He has come into this world to be a warrior king. He has come to slay evil. 
And only those people who have not only know intellectually of the fact that Jesus came to slay evil, but who has also experienced overcoming evil in their lives, it is those such people that can truly cherish Christ. Oftentimes, I think the mistake of Christians these days is, we think of theology as one bucket and experience as the other bucket. Right? We think, okay, knowledge of God in the Bible is here, and my experience with God is the other bucket. And sometimes we think they're not related. Right? We think theology is theology, and then experience like, you know, I don't know, having wild dreams and having religious experiences is, is a different bucket. But that's not true. Right? In the scripture, when you look at Jesus, the the very reason why Jesus performed all these miracles, and the very reason why the apostles were performing all these miracles, was to, was so that those miracles, through those miracles, people experience the truth of what is being spoken. The miracles that Jesus and the apostles performed were used to verify the truth of the words of Christ. So our experience has to conform with theology. In order for us to experience Christ. People who advocate experience without the Bible. That's a very dangerous thing. People who only advocate theology. Without, without understanding that true theology leads to experience. That's also a dangerous thing. In order for us to truly cherish Christ. Our experience has to conform to the, to, to the truth of what is being spoken. And therefore, in order for us to cherish Christ, we need to have experienced His, His, His delivering us over, His, His delivering us, um, His delivering us, how do I say it? His delivering evil out of our lives. That's the way to truly experience Christ. Have you experienced Him slaying evil in your life? If not, perhaps that is why you cannot cherish Christ. First John verses 1 through 10 talks about, once again, especially verses 4 to 10 speaks about the reason why he came. And like he said, he came to slay evil. And there are two primary sources of evil in the Bible. The two primary sources of evil is sin within us and the devil outside of us. Those are the two sources of evil. The reason why creation is bleeding, the reason why there are murders and destructions, the reason why there is hell on earth, it is because of the sin inside of us and because of the devil outside of us. He has come to slay the evil within us. He has come to slay the evil outside of us. That's the reason why he came. And I think briefly we talked about the evil within us last week. And as a recap, once again, as a recap to what we talked about last week, we need to admit that there is sin which is evil inside of us. I think so. The, so, so John in First John chapter in the verse four of today's chapter, John defines sin as lawlessness. Right? Sin is basically lawlessness. God, and what this means is God designed the world, with God designed the universe with certain universal laws and truth. God designed the universe in, or, with, uh, or, in an orderly way, which means God designed, God, there are laws to this universe, both physical laws and there are spiritual laws. 
And when we conform to the spiritual laws of God, our lives flourish and our relationships flourish. But when we go against the spiritual laws of God, then all the destructive things happen. And that is very true. I'll give you an example. So this week, as one does, I was in a YouTube rabbit hole, right? You know, you, you search one thing and then it leads to another. So my YouTube rabbit hole, because I'm so holy, led to an interview with this young Christian dude, 20-something. And he's getting married. I can't tell you where the link is because it's a rabbit hole, right? I don't remember. But it's, it's, it's a young Christian dude, right? And he's getting, he's like early 20s, and he's getting married. What's the big deal about young 20-somethings getting married? Um... Think about what make this guy special is he's, he in the interview he says yeah I've never kissed my girlfriend we've been going out for like two or three years I never kissed her and the first time I'll kiss her is when the pastor says you may kiss your bride that is the first time I will kiss her and I go what why and the interviewer asked why and he says one number one he's a smart guy. Kissing will eventually lead to sex. It's, it's true, right? Right? Kissing will eventually lead to sex. But number two, he says, I want to respect my fiance, girlfriend fiance. I don't want to use her in any way. I want to have a clear-headed relationship when I'm with her. And I think physical intimacy before we're married will be getting in the way. And I go, God bless you. That is what righteousness looks like. There he has a relationship with the girl. And he wants to do the right thing. Which is not to have sex with her. So that he could honor God and respect her. Right? And this is very different from people who decide to disobey God. And try to act out their physical inclinations. You know what happens? Most of the people that I know who have start to have sex before their marriage, you know, at the moment moment of their physical union, they feel great and intimate. But but after they start consuming each other, after the act, right, they get delirious, right? Their relationship no longer becomes this respectable thing. Once you start sleeping with that person, boundaries become blurred. And when boundaries start to become blur, you don't st- you don't you lose the perspective that that person that you're sleeping with is another human being. Therefore, I'm telling you, once you start sleeping with someone, you start losing respect for that person. I don't know why that is. You start to re- mistreat that person. You, you 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 start to say something harsh against that person. You that respect line becomes blurred, and that's the experience of my life and the people around my. Not my life, but the people like around me. Because they choose to disobey God. And their relationship, because they cross that line, becomes destructive and ugly and hungry and consuming. Well, as people who try to obey God, it might be hard, but that relationship becomes a, a relationship of respect and flourishing. You see how that works? God designed the universe to be, including our spiritual being, He designed us with certain spiritual rules. When we conform to those rules, relationships will flourish. 
Our, our lives will flourish when we disobey. When we say, God, you don't know what you're talking about. I will do what I want to do. Then it become, then our lives become as far as out of control. Sin is lawlessness. Sin is going against the law of God. Right? And that desire to go against the laws of God is the root cause of evil. We are born with such a rebellious heart. When I talk, when I talk about law, we don't want to, we don't want to think about law. Our definition of love is something that is free and without any responsibilities or, 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 or obligations. Right? Like I was having a conversation with one of my paralegals and I said, you know, there's a certain aspect of, of love where responsibility and obligations are required. Right? Sometimes I said a guy has to propose to his girlfriend out of a sense of obligation, right? And she was shocked. <gasps> Love is not an obligation. Love is a matter of free will. I go, yeah, that's true. But love also involves obligation. She couldn't understand that because the concept of obligation and law is offensive to the modern person. And I think it's not just her, but all of us are born with that. We do not like the law of God. We are born lawless. We are born with it. And I gave you an example. So like I, I, I found a very interesting um, clip of 60 Minutes. That's one of my favorite shows. It's a news, news, news you know, show. And um, they, in one of the segments, they went to Yale Baby Lab. So what Yale people do is they research baby behavior. Right? It's, it's very interesting. So they took a bunch of toddlers, like three months old, like right out of the oven, three months, right? And they took the three month, they took the three month old down and they, they, and they performed a puppet show. Right? One puppet, there are two puppets, right? And this one puppet is helping out, like this puppet is oh, having a hard time, this one puppet is helping out the other puppet, right? Very nice puppet, right? And then, then, and second puppet show is, there, there's one puppet who's like hitting the other puppet. And they ask a three-month-old baby, who do you like? Which puppet do you like? 87% of three-month-old chooses the puppet that helps the other puppet out rather than the puppet that hits the other puppet. Three months old! What is the conclusion of the Yale baby lab? He says, human beings are innately born with a sense of right and wrong. There is a moral code, they say, that we are born with. So the idea that human beings are just born like in like an empty vessel and this society that teaches them right and wrong, that's not true. We have an internal sense of right and wrong. But what is also interesting about the baby lab is we're also born with a sense of bias. Same experiment. Puppet. So like one other experiment. Golden grams and Cheerios. That's like the, like the most universal question of mankind. Do you like, are you a Cheerios person or a Gordon Grahams person? If you're a Cheerios person, I don't, I don't know who you are, right? Cheerios or Gordon Grahams? Cheerios or Gordon Grahams? And certain babies pick Cheerios and certain babies pick Gordon Grahams, right? And then they do another puppet show where one puppet is eating Gordon Grahams and the other puppet is eating Cheerios. Who do you like? Which puppet do you like more? The kid who chose the Cheerio likes the Cheerio puppet more. The kid who chose the Golden Grand likes the Golden Grand cracker more. Bias, we're born with preferences. But what the baby love also show was, not only do we have preferences, but 
when you do a puppet show where, like, when you show, like, this little Cheerio-loving puppet struggling or a, or a, or a Golden Graham-loving puppet struggling, kids who prefer Golden Grahams will want, like, the, the opposite, the Cheerio puppet to suffer. It's weird. They show a puppet show where the Cheerio, like, puppet is suffering and having a hard time. Kids love it. Golden grandbabies, when they see the Cheerio puppet suffering, they love it. Baby lab conclusion number two. Yes, we're born with a sense of right and wrong, but we're sensitive, we're born with biases. And not only are we born with biases, we love it when the people who are not on our side suffer. Babies are jerks. We are born with a sense of right and wrong because we're born, because we, the universal law of God is encoded in us. But there is also a part of us that not only hates the law of God, but prefers, prefers causing suffering of other people who are different from us. It is innate. The sense of right and wrong is innate, but the sense of also evil is also very innate. Jesus Christ has come to destroy the evil within us. How does he do that? Listen to last week's sermon. I go in detail. But only those who have been delivered, who are experiencing delivery over evil in their lives, it is only those people who can cherish Christ. When you believe in Jesus Christ, when he paid for your sin on that cross, when you become his, you really do experience, start to experience delivery over sin. You really do. You may not be perfect, but you begin to slowly but surely experience delivery over, over sin. And our church is full of such examples. I cannot tell you every one of them because, you know, you guys are very sensitive to me calling you out during sermon. Right? But come talk to me privately. I can give you names and I can give you stories. Don't worry, I'm not gonna. Right? But there are people who are deli- being delivered over in, re- in real ways. Delivered over lust, delivered over addictions, delivered over, you know, premarital sex, delivered over all these things. People are being delivered here. Why? Because Jesus Christ is working in their lives. He's really doing what He said He has come to the, come on earth to do, which is to deliver us from evil and sin. Are you experienced? Have you experienced such delivery? Or is Jesus Christ merely a baby in a manger born 2,000 years ago? Not only has Jesus come to deliver us from our sins, He has come to deliver us from the works of the devil. Devil is also sinless, and, and John says, the devil has been sinning from the beginning. And it is the devil's work to, to make us like him, to influence us, influence us so that we will be like him. I was at a Christmas party oh, this Friday. Sorry I couldn't make it a small group. I was at an office Christmas party. I'm so sorry. Never happened again. Right? I repent. So, office Christmas party. And we are in D.C., one of those shranky, trendy restaurants in D.C. Because we're a shranky, trendy firm. 
And I was like, and I was like, all my coworkers are there, and all my friends at work are there. I'm very popular at work, by the way. And, like, and so they're there. And it's open bar because we're trendy, right? We're trendy and we're fa- we're fashionable. So it's open bar. And boy, oh boy, when it's open bar, do people take advantage of open bars, right? I've never seen people drink like that since one of our weddings. I'm just kidding, right? So <laughs> they were like open bar, and they were like drinking. And I was in the middle of them drinking. And all the, and I, you know, I'm a responsible guy. I don't get drunk. Oh, I haven't said no. I drank a glass of champagne, right? Sorry, I repent. And then after a while, you started at, I was there at eight, and then I left at midnight, so like four hours. So people have been drinking nonstop for four hours. And by the end of, by when midnight came, all of them were slurring their words. I also got Jay, I love you. From one of my paralegals, right? Right? Even my, all the friends, I can't talk names because it's being recorded. Right? No judgment. They were slurring their words, saying, I don't know what they were saying, and they were really happy. And what I noticed about that was clearly alcohol is influencing them. Right? It's not judgment when I say alcohol is influencing them, but really, that's what it is. Alcohol has influenced them. And I was the only sober guy there. I was the only clear thinking there. Once again, no judgment, coworkers. I love you. You can see the influence, the alcohol is over people. That is when I realized two things. Oh, that's why the Bible says don't, don't be drunk. Because Christians are called to be clear thinking, not inebriated. And second thing that I realized, that's how the devil influences you. He, he, he starts to have this persuasive power over you so that we will sin. That's what the devil does. He wants to influence us so that we will sin. And the way he influenced us to, so that we will sin is he wants to us to be exactly like him. What is Satan? Satan is, John says, Satan has, has been sinning in the, from the beginning. What verse is that? Anyway, I think that's verse 7 or 8. Alright, so Satan has been sinning from the beginning, the, ball, the, the John says. And sin is also lawlessness. So Satan has been lawless from the beginning. And his very purpose is that he wants us to be exactly like him. So let's talk about how Satan has sinned in, in, in how Satan is sinning in the Bible. What kind of sin that Satan has been sinning from the beginning? What do you know about Satan's sins? Number one, Satan's sin involves pride. Right? Ezekiel 28. This describes Satan. He says, Your heart became proud on account of your beauty, and you corrupted your wisdom because of your splendor. Right? Lucifer fell, fell from, from, Lucifer, Satan was initially, and well, you know this, an angel of God. And he rebelled against God. Why? Because he fell in love with himself. Right? Once he started to see, see how great he was, obeying God doesn't make any sense. Once he discovered how great he was, his plan, his his plan for the world, right, his opinions about life mattered more 
than God. That's pride. What pride is, what pride is, is not thinking that you're better than anyone else. Right? That's part of what being prideful is. But being prideful means you think that everything has to revolve around your view of things. Being prideful means you think the universe exists to, to, so that, to fulfill your script of life. All of us have a certain idea, idea how life should unfold. All of us have a certain idea of how our lives are supposed to be. And we're, when we're, when we hold on to that, rather than understanding that the universe belongs to God, that's pride. Thinking that everything has to revolve around the way you think it ought to be, that's pride. And that's why in James chapter 4, James chapter 5, I think, 4 or 5, in James, James says, do not boast about tomorrow, right? Do not boast, do not say, tomorrow, this, like, I'm gonna stay here for a year, do business, make money, and move on, right? James says, such planning is evil. And I go, what? I, did, I couldn't understand when I was younger. James says, James condemns people who says, tomorrow I'm gonna go to this place, I'm gonna do that, and next year I'm gonna move on to another city. James says, such planning is evil. And I go, why is it evil? You know why it's evil? Because you're doing the same thing that Satan is doing. I have a certain view, a script of life, and I want this life to go out, like, like unfold the way I planned it. There is no other alternative to life than my plans. You hold on to that other than understanding the universe unfolds as the way God and God unfolds it. That's pride. People have to act the way I want them to act. My career has to go the way that I want it to go. Everything has to go the way that I want it to go. That's being like the devil. That's being in love with your plans rather than having a true understanding that this universe and your life in it belongs to God. May I say, if you are freaked out about tomorrow, where you're going to go, who you're going to marry, what job you're going to have, may I dare to say, part of that fear is based on something that the devil is doing, which is planning for yourself. Thinking that your life has to unfold the way you ought to be, rather than thinking that, that, rather than thinking that this universe and your life belongs to God. You're afraid of tomorrow because of your pride. You understand? I know important men God has used to save, God saves. And all the important men that I know in my life, the way God saved them is He t- takes things away from them. All the, I never yet met a successful man who was saved while that person was successful. No, the person always become saved when they fail. Why? Because before their failure, their pride of life was so great. They're like Satan. Oh, I am so great. Oh, everything that I've planned out became okay. And therefore I know everything. In order for God to save them, He takes things away. Do you have a plan for your life? Is God just an accessory? Is your plan the primary center of your life? 
then I dare to say it is pride. I dare to say it is your life being, you like being, you like becoming, you like the devil. Satan has been sinning because of his pride. Satan, once again, is sinning because by practicing lawlessness. He hates the law of God. He prefers his law rather than God's law. And he does every, and he does everything that he can to disrupt God's law. How do you know? Look at the way he attacks Adam and Eve. He went after Eve rather than Adam, right? And the way he tempts Eve was, if you, if you eat of that fruit, you will not need God. He tries to corrupt the law of God. He tries to make us lawless. That's how he tempts you, by the way. He tempts you by saying, by questioning the holiness of God. Right? He's telling you, God doesn't care whether you watch porn. God doesn't care whether you have sex with your girlfriend. God doesn't care whether you lie. God doesn't care whether you steal. God doesn't care. God is indifferent. God's holiness doesn't matter. Therefore, disregard, disobey, ignore the law of God. If Pastor Jay preaches about the law of God, he is a bigot. He is a closed-minded, Bible-thumping fundamentalist. You are an, an enlightened 21st century well, like reasonable thinking human being, therefore the Bible has to, Bible is not relevant to you. Go lawless. That's how he tempts you. By questioning the holiness of God to you. You can say that about your husband. You can say it about your wife. Go do it. It doesn't matter, they say. Where is the holiness of God in your life, may I ask? Where is the holiness of God in your life? Where is the law of God in your life? Does it even matter to you? That's how it tempts you. He is prideful. He is lawless. What else he is? He's burning with lust and violence. That's how you know Genesis 6, right? The sons of God married the children of men. They gave their offsprings. And the children of God, the angels of God, burned with lust for the women, daughters of men. They burned with lust and they married them. And their offsprings became violent men. How does the devil tempt you? Well, he tempts you but letting you burn with lust, but letting you burn with desire, letting you burn with violence. Sexual lust, clearly. Lust for clothes, lust for success, lust for food, lust for fashion, lust. Lust. For some reason, I wanted a tie this week. I don't know why. The way the same tempt me this week is I just wanted a tie. And I just couldn't get out of that desire that I want that tie. It's a tie. I can get a tie anyone I want, but I have a particular design for it. I couldn't get the thought of the tie out of my head. That's how he tempted me this week. I burned with lust for over a tie. It doesn't take much 
for us to burn with lust, does it not? Stay there, Satan says. You want it. You just stay there wanting things. Or violence. Obviously, we're not violent men and women. Right? You don't, you don't, we don't, we don't use our fists. Right? We don't use our cars to enact violence. Although some of the wages, some of you drive, man. Holy moly. Our violence is more insidious. It's the words. The whispers. The criticism. Oh, we're very violent, aren't we not? If you could isolate what you say about other people and play it back, if you play it back, I don't, I think we'll be so ashamed. Live in wantingness, live in violence, destruction. This week, have you used your words to be more critical? Or be, or be more encouraging? What is the default, okay, what is the default setting of your words? Is it criticism or judgment and gossip? Or love and encouragement? What is the default setting of your word, of your tongue? May I dare to say, we go over to the judgment and the criticism and the destruction part of our tongues more often than the encouragement and the loveliness part of our tongue. Isn't that true? Satan tempts you to go there, remain in there. Satan is prideful. Satan is lawless. Satan dwells in lust and violence. Satan dwells in lies. Jesus says, Satan is a father of lies. He implants lies in our heads. Inception, I watched Inception the other day. He incepts lies in your head. Lies about what? Lies about God. Half truths about God. Remember, First John, the reason, one of the main reasons why John wrote First John was to combat false teachers. The false teachers. 90% of these false teachers were kind of agreeing with the Bible, biblical. But in the, it's the 10% that they twisted. And these false teachers were coming to these churches and they were contaminating the minds of the minds of the believers. John called them the Antichrist. Why? Because Satan is using these false teachers to implant lies about God in your head. Is the lies about is the idea is your idea about God in your head based on truth or is it based on half truths? For example, so first John says God is love. The very definition of love is God. And God is holy, God is righteous, God is moral, God is good. Love has to be based on holiness, love has to be based on justice, love has to be based on right and wrong. It's true. In order for love to be loved, it has to be based on truth, it has to be based on righteousness, it has to be based on justice, it has to be based on right and wrong. That's what true love is. If I tell, if my daughter wants junk food all the time, and if I just give, keep her feeding junk food all the time, is that love? No. Sometimes love says, no, you can't have that pizza. No, you can't have that cinnamon. No, you can't have Chick-fil-A. That's pretty much everything my daughter loves in the world. My daughter loves pizza. My daughter loves Chick-fil-A. My daughter loves cinnamon. And if I say, yeah, you can eat only, you can eat that for the rest of your day. Is that love? No. 
To be truly loved, I have to say, no, that is not good. That is not right. You need to, you need to eat something else. You see? Love has to be based on truth. But our definition of God's love is based on permissiveness. God's okay with this. God will forgive you. Love of God is so free, which it is, non-judgmental, and just cheap. Satan tries to tell us a non-biblical base of the love of God. And we start believing in it. Right? Satan either questions, Satan either tells you God can never love you because of your sins, right? Or Satan tries to teach you that says, God, God doesn't care about your, God doesn't care about sin. He's just an easy dad who's just permissible about everything that you do. And we agree, we listen to that rather than the Bible. Satan is a liar. He lies about God. And if you don't read the Bible regularly, your idea of God in your head, it's not based on truth, it's based on Satan's design. That's how Satan sins, and that's how Satan is influencing you to sin. And what he does is absolutely real. Isn't it, isn't it real? Isn't what I just said really real? Doesn't he always tempt you to be prideful, making you think that your view of things are more important than God's? Doesn't he not say, doesn't he not question the holiness of God in your mind so that you will ignore his laws? Does he not implant half-truths about God in your head? Does he not want you to, to remain lustful and in violence? I think that's true. It's certainly how he attacks me every day. See what's happening here? See what's happening? John says sin is lawlessness. Our nature is lawless. Satan is lawless. So when Satan tempts us to be lawless, if our nature is lawless, what do we say? Oh yeah, you're right. And we go lawless. We're lawless internally, Satan is lawless externally, and when the internal and the external meet, is a disaster. Say, Jesus has come to destroy the works of Satan. That's what verse 8 says. Satan has come to destroy the works of Satan. How? By making us righteous. That's what John says, right? John says, let's, where's John? In verse 7 and 8, let's go. Let's just go verse 7 and 8. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is, is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the work of devil. Next verse, please. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this is evident we are the children of God, and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is, of not, is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. 
John is making a clear statement. There are people in the world who practices righteousness, and there are people in the world who practices sin. If you practice righteousness, that's evidence that you belong to God. If you practice sin, that's evidence that you belong to Satan. What is John trying to say? John is trying to say, it is very possible for people to live righteously. In our minds, we say, oh, we're all sinners. We're all prisoners of sin. It's inevitable that we sin. We, we just give ourselves a free pass to sin. But John differs. John says, it is perfectly possible for us to live righteously. In fact, it is only those who live righteously, those are the people who belong to God. If you keep on sinning, John says, you belong to the devil. Why can John make such a grand statement? Because John knows when Jesus Christ delivers you from your sins, you really do start to live righteously. This is not just a concept of James. This is truth. James is saying if the people can live righteously if they've been delivered from sin. Righteous here means, once again, the right thing to do, reflecting the moral right character of God. Right? Definition of practice means the general direction of your life. Practice means not moral perfection, because we can never be morally perfect, but the general direction of your life is you start to live more like God. The general direction of your life is you start to do more, more right things. The right, you're attracted to the right things, you do the right things. The general trajectory direction of your life is governed by the right things. Practice sinning means the general trajectory of your life is comprised of sinning and lawlessness. John is talking about the general trajectory of life here. If you have been delivered from sin, then the right things of God make sense to you. And you will start to do it. Yes, there are times where you are tempted to lust. Yes, there are times where you are tempted to criticize. But those are only for brief seasons. The general trajectory of your life is you strive to do the right thing. If you're practicing sin, there are moments when your conscience tells you you gotta do the right thing, and you go, okay. But the general, but those moments are interrupted by the general direction of where you start to live sinfully. Where you continuously live sinfully. What is the general trajectory of your life? Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Are you governed by righteousness? A desire for righteousness? Or are you governed by the pride, by the desires, by the lust, by the lies, by the lawlessness? This is a very important question. Because Jesus Christ did not die for us so that we can continually remain on our sinful trajectory. He has come to change the trajectory of our lives so that we will become more righteous. That we will be attracted to do the right things of God. Momentarily, for example, you may be tempted to lust over a woman, for example. 
Momentarily, you may be tempted to look over things that you shouldn't look at. And maybe for moments, for, for brief moments, you are tempted. But if you look back, the general trajectory is, yes, those there are moments of lust, temptation of lust. But more and more, you are governed by the truth that the woman that you're lusting after is a human being. And you should never use a human being for your, for your pleasure. That is a disgrace to God. That truth governing your life, more so than the lust, is evidence that you are heading in the right trajectory. Yes, there are moments that you are tempted to skip church on Sunday. But the general trajectory of your life is you, th- you, you, you know it is the right thing to do to come worship God on Sunday. And you are governed by that rightness. If you're a prisoner of sin, momentarily, you, you may think worshiping God on Sunday is a good thing. But generally speaking, you are governed by the trajectory of wanting to do what you want to do on Sunday as opposed to worshiping God. You may come to church maybe a handful of times a year, but most of the time, it, you're governed by what you want to do. So the question is, what is the trajectory of your life? Is it righteousness or is it sin? If it is sin, I'm afraid you have not been delivered from the power of sin. I'm afraid that you are still within the grasp of Satan. If it's righteousness, praise the Lord, you have been delivered. How has Jesus Christ, how did Jesus Christ deliver us from from being prisoners to sin into the prisoner of righteousness? You know how? John says in verse 9, he gave us the seed of God. What is the seed of God? The seed of God means the new nature of God. He's saying the only way that we can be delivered from sin onto righteousness is that Jesus Christ had to give us a new nature. Why? Our old nature is lawless. We are in agreement with Satan. And the only way that lawless people can become righteous people, it is, it is so that we will get a new nature. Jesus Christ gives us new natures. That's what he's come to do. And how does he give us new nature? He gives us new natures by dying for us on the cross. On the cross, he embraces sin. He became our sins. And when God cursed him on that cross, when God killed him on the cross, he took the power of sin that dominates our, our lives with him. I'll give you an example. Lord of the Rings. Have you seen Lord of the Rings? Fellowship of the Rings? No? Lord of the Rings. My favorite film series. That's Pastor Ujin. There's a first, in the first movie, right? The, the hobbits and the fellowship go to Mount Doom, right? And there's Mount Doom is one of the biggest mountains in, 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 in Middle Earth, right? Tallest mountains. It is so tall that when you fall, it, they say it takes days for you to reach the, reach the bottom. It's that tall. Can you believe that? You're falling for days. Ah, 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 for days. That's how tall Mount Doom was. So like, they had to go through it to reach the other side, right? So the fellowship, the hobbits, and the humans, and Gandalf goes to Mount Doom. And the bridge, in the narrow bridge of Mount Doom, there comes the fire monster, Barak. Oh! They need to pass the bridge to go to the other side, to, to destroy the ring. 
But Balrog is there. Sean's geeking out right here, right, Sean? There's Balrog, the fire monster, right? And they have to make it to the other side, but they need to defeat. But the fire monster is too powerful. How does the fellowship destroy the destroy Balrog? What does he? What does Gandalf do? Sacrifices himself. He jumps off the bridge, drags Balrog with him, and they fall for days. Oh, oh. He embraces Balrog and he falls off the cliff. That's the image of what Christ has done on the cross. The sin that overpowers us, that overpowered you and me, he embraces it, he becomes it. And on the cross, God kills him with that sin. And because Jesus has done that, the thing that dominated over our lives is gone because God killed it in Christ. And when Jesus Christ resurrects from the grave, He has new life and that new life He gives to us. When Jesus Christ resurrects from the dead, grave, He gives us new natures. The nature that was once lawless <laughs> Now we, we start to love righteousness. The nature that once thought law, sin, sin was a natural thing to do, our new nature is now we know righteousness is the right thing to do. The reason why sin no longer dominates us is because Christ had destroyed it on the cross and has given us a new nature. I've known people. People have been telling me here. My life is different. It has changed. I'm used to, I used to be this way. Now I'm this way. And the reason why they can say that is because they have been given new natures. And the reason why you have been given new natures is because Christ took the dominant power of sin and he took it and he killed it on the, and God killed it on the cross with Jesus Christ. And therefore sin is no longer your master. That's how a Christian feels, by the way. You're not... Yes, there are temptations, but you know it's not dominating you. Because you hear the voice of God. And your heart wants to do what God wants to do. The nature, your nature, is that you want to do the right thing. That's the miracle, you know? That's how you know you're a Christian. That you're not dominated by sin. You're dominated by the desire to please and honor God. Is that you? If it is, praise the Lord. Jesus Christ has delivered you from the power of sin. But if sin makes more sense to you, It's lust and desires. If they make more sense to you than righteousness does. If you cannot get out of that habit that you're doing over and over and over again. Maybe you have to question where you are. Who is dominating in your life? 
Romans chapter 6, Paul says, you cannot sin. If you're delivered, you, can, you are no longer under the dominion of power of sin. Someone asked Paul, hey Paul, if Jesus Christ died for me on the cross, then that means, like, he's like an accountant. If Jesus Christ died for us on the cross, or Lord, that means I can sin whatever I want and still go to heaven? That's what people have been asking Paul in Romans. And Paul says, no. If you have been delivered from the power of sin, you will want to be slaves of righteousness. Because sin is no longer your master. What is your master? If it is righteousness, Jesus Christ has set the power, has destroyed the power of the devil over your life. Praise the Lord. If you haven't, it's not too late for you. Do not think sin is the natural way to do, the natural state of being. Do not ever think that way. Jesus Christ has come to deliver you from it. Jesus Christ has not come merely as a baby so that you can stay in your sin. What was the purpose of Him dying for you if we were going to remain where we are? He comes for deliverance. He will deliver you through His Word. The seed of God not only means new nature, the seed of God also means the Word of God. The seed of God also means the Holy Spirit. Through His Word, through His Spirit, He will deliver you from the power of sin. Will you repent? Will you cry out to Him? Will you open up His Word? Will you pray to Him? Will you seek Him? Will you ask Him to deliver you from your sins? He will. But please, do not stay with the foolish idea that he has come to give a rubber stamp of approval of your sinful life. He will do what he said he will do. He honestly, he honestly does. We are people here who can, who can tell you that he does. Before it's too late, repent and cry out to the king. Let's pray.